So, all right, we're going to go into Second Peter chapter three, and we're going to work on the verses that really sit right there between verse four, especially verse five and six and seven tonight. We're going a little bit faster in the Peter study than in the Jude, obviously, um, unless you want to do a five-year program on Second Peter, because it's possible, um, but we're not, but it's possible. So we're going to look at these verses tonight. I'm going to start with verse number three, just to, to give the whole context, um, and then a couple of words in verse number eight, all right? So, know this first of all, verse 3 says, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it, it escapes their notice, that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. I'm going to stop there on purpose. Because I want to ask you, who is he writing to? Christians. He started it in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, beloved, this is the second time I'm writing to you. He brings it back again in verse number 8. Don't let this fact escape your notice, beloved. Why doesn't he address the mockers? They wouldn't believe it anyway. He's writing to believers who are living in the land of mockers. And it's interesting, but when people mock and mock and mock, it starts to shake people. And they get confused, and they get upset, and they don't know what to do. And when Peter is addressing, he's addressing us. Because the dangers are, not only that we can be confused by a mocker, but I really hope we never become one. And so I think that the warning passages are pretty thick and heavy in the New Testament. But notice when you study those, how often they come back to, but you, and he addresses the church. That's Paul's standard, too. Now, here's what's very interesting. I have in front of me two articles from newspapers. They were written in 2003 in two different locations. All right? One was in Warsaw, Indiana. And the other one was in a place called Valley View, Pennsylvania. Do we know where that's at? Valley View, Pennsylvania. Who knows? This is what's interesting. This is to the editor. I'll read you the one from Pennsylvania first. I'm for peace. This person named Paul Troutman is writing. I'm for peace. Because of the way the world is today... I also believe war is sometimes necessary to have peace. But the goal should always be peace. We humans have been on this earth for thousands of years, and we still have wars in spite of all the efforts of all the religions around the world. Clearly something is not working. Here are five steps I believe will lead us ultimately to world peace. 
Number one, permit ourselves to acknowledge that some of our beliefs about God and about life are no longer working. You think this is going the right way? Number two, explore the possibility that there is something we do not understand about God and about life, the understanding of which could change everything. Number three, announce that we are willing for new understandings of God and life to now be brought forth, understanding that could produce a new way of life on this planet. Number four, courageously examine these new understandings and, if they align with our own personal inner truth and knowing, enlarge our belief system to include them. Number five, express our lives as a demonstration of our highest beliefs rather than as a denial of them. All right. How do you how do you like all that? <laughs> Bother you a little bit? Water it down. Simple this way. Oh, let's let's realize that not everything we've ever been taught is is true. So let's explore the possibility that something else is out there saying something, and let's embrace that. Let's take on something new because the old doesn't work. And then once we do that, we're enlarging our beliefs, and then we're going to demonstrate that in our life. All right, that was the one article. You ready for the second one? This is interesting. This was also in the paper in Warsaw, Indiana, um, to the editor from Adana Stewart. The situation in Iraq reminds us that humans are continually in conflict, conflict because humans have been taught that conflict and violence are acceptable behaviors. Our holy scriptures contain passages in which God vents his anger at humans by killing them, or causing sickness and pestilence, or placing some other disaster in their path. This has produced a widespread belief in a God who uses and condones the use of violence as a means of conflict resolution. Unless we change those basic beliefs, we will never see an end to the kind of tragedies we are now witnessing. There is something that we can do about this now, however. We can all take five steps to peace. Would you be surprised if you started to hear these? Number one, permit ourselves to acknowledge that some of our old beliefs in God and about life are no longer working. Two, explore the possibility that there is something we do not understand about God and about life, the understanding of which could change everything. Three, Announce that we are willing for new understandings about God and about life to, to now be brought forth, understanding that this could produce a new way of life on this planet. Number four, courageously examine these new understandings and, if they align with our personal inner truth and knowing, enlarge our belief system to include them. Five, express our lives as a demonstration of the highest belief rather than a denial of them. I encourage humanity to do so. It sounds to me like somebody hit all the newspapers in the country that weekend as letters to the editor, and it was the same story over and over. Where did it come from? I have no idea. I tried to trace it. There were different places that they said this came from them or this came from them or something like that. But the overall statement, if you step back from it, is this isn't working. 
what we have learned in God's Word is not working after all. God's kind of used violence as a way of conflict resolution, is what they said. And so let's go on and find something else that would work better. It's not that much different than what the mockers are saying. The mockers are saying this in verse number 4. Where is the promise of his coming? Now, understand what they're looking for. They're not looking for the rapture. And they're really not looking for anything. But the promise of Scripture, almost all the way through, because the Jews got a big dose of this, and if you take the rapture out, because that's about the church, the coming of Christ is for judgment. What they are questioning is if God even has what it takes to judge this world. They are mocking his coming. They are not hoping he comes. Because <laughs> quite honestly, if he came, they're in trouble. So he's, they're mocking him. Oh, he's never going to judge. He's never going to judge. No, he can't judge. We need a different way to think this through. Because after all, God is kind of strange in the way he just uses Violence for conflict resolution. So let's come up with a different plan, different ideas, different things than what God says. And that's what's interesting here, because they are questioning God's promise. Where's the promise of his coming? So, as we walk through this, it's very interesting to me. In verse 3 and 4, they question God's word, really. The question is word. He made promises. And we talked about some of these previously. And we went through and found that the promise of mockers have been there for a long time. We know that the promise of his coming is all over the scriptures. We know that's true. And here they questioned whether or not that's true. Is God really going to come? Are you sure he's going to come? I don't think he's going to come. In verse 5 through seconds, 7... Five through seven, they question God's capabilities. They question his sovereignty, really, when they talk about, well, you know, things have existed like this forever, uh, just as they said at the end of verse number four. And what you see in verse number five is a statement about how God created everything and destroyed everything by his word. And they are questioning his word in the first section. And now his sovereignty, can he really do it? I don't know. And when you get down to the end of it, in verse number 8 and 9, what they're really going to question here is his mercy. Because why is he waiting so long? Why is he waiting so long? And the Lord answers that question. And it's a beautiful question to answer. What is the statement? The Lord is not slow about his promises. One counts slowness. That's what the mockers would do but is patient towards you. Aren't you glad he didn't come before you knew Christ? Wasn't that a patient, merciful thing for God to do? That he waited long enough for us to come? He's not will, willing or wishing for any to perish, but to all, for all to come to repentance. That's an incredible God to look down on, a, on an earth that is really an affront to him, an offense to him, the, the people on this earth and the sins they commit and how flagrant they are and, and just how they deny the Lord. And then these folks get into churches and they mock God's word. If it was one of us running this universe, what would we have done by now? We would have had enough, no doubt. We would have smashed it all by now. 
And yet God's patience is incredible. This is, this is the flavor of these verses from 3 to 9, is what the mockers are all about and what they're doing. They are mocking his word. They're mocking his ability. They're mocking his mercy. They're attacking him at his character level. And they're saying he's not anything like what we thought. Very much like some of these clippings where they say, well, that's not going to work. God's used this other style before, but that's not going to work. It doesn't work anymore. Because if God cannot keep his promises, how can you be sure that he's going to keep his promise to keep you saved? You wouldn't want a God like that, would you? But we know he keeps his promises. And that's important for us. So, Peter is writing to us. (laughs) This is for our benefit that we walk through this. Not because it's going to change the mocker. He's not telling us, go out and solve this mocking problem. Go out and, you know, start a club to, to, you know, evangelize the mockers. He says, nope, I want you to know this, because this is the reality of what they say, what they question, and what their end will be. Okay? So let's walk through it a little bit in this section as we walk through this. Um, He talks about mockers here who shake our, our... our belief system, they shake our, our thoughts, they make us stumble because we're trying to answer mockers. By the way, a, a mocker is a fool. And what does the book of Proverbs say about answering a fool? You know? Don't do it. It's a waste of your words to answer a fool. And so the, that's they're trying to confuse us and we're trying to find the great answers. But when they mock they expose their true character. There is a passage that describes them to a T, and it's in Romans chapter 1. Go back there. You've seen it before. But walk with me, and I'm going to highlight a couple of verses here that show you. This is what the mocker does. This is what he looks like. Romans chapter 1. Keep flying past it. Go too many pages one way, too many the other. Okay, chapter 1, start in verse 18 with me, and we're going to highlight a couple of these. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, watch, who suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. Push it down, shove it aside. Oh, it doesn't work anymore. That kind of mentality. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. They have the evidence of who God is. God's evidence is before them. God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So, this is something very interesting to say. They've seen his attributes, they've seen his power, his ability, they've seen his divine nature, his sovereignty. But when you get to verse number 21, what's lacking? Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Look at that. 
They did not honor him as God. Who are these people? <laughs> that they have the, the audacity to say, well, I'm not going to honor God. They've seen everything about him. They would not honor him. Jump down to verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, fit! They didn't see it fit. How do you explain that one? Well, I don't think it's fit to acknowledge God. Wow! Isn't that an incredible statement? In regard to these people, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. That's the essence of a mocker. That's what they look like. Now, notice Romans, when Paul wrote that, he brought them right back to creation, didn't he? Peter, in what he's sharing with us here tonight, he takes us right back to creation. What is the big deal that's hit our, our, our school systems and our, our uh, science world and stuff in the last 50, 60 years? And attack on creation. Replace it with anything that doesn't have God in it. Evolution, whatever you want to call people inserting along the way. They're just trying to come up with a whole world concept without God in it. Like the articles, they want peace without God in it. We don't want that God. We want to make our own beliefs. And we'll find peace that way. Here, they're trying to make a creation scenario without God in it. And you can't do that and follow Scripture. Because how often God brings it up, it's about creation. It takes you back to creation. And who actually created this world? He did. And how do we know that? Because he told us so. We weren't there to question him, were we? Nobody's going to confess to that, are they? You'd have to be at least 6,000 years old. Did you know that? At least. I think right about. But let's go to the founding of the world. This is where Peter starts. He says, uh, "Just they argue, everything continues, verse number 4, just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Right. The founding of the world. The world that was. We're going to use it this way. The world that was. In creation. It was created by his word. That's an awesome thought. By his word. Remember God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, we can say a lot of things all day long and not get anything accomplished. You can sit at the stoplight in Enid and say, turn green. It's going to turn green when the timer gets there, not when you say so. Somebody had said, if you really want to test your deity, go and command the sun to rise. Now, don't go with the clock and say, I know it's going to be at you know, 6.58, so I'm going to go out and say it then. That may sound impressive to you, but try it right now. We can't control that. God created it by his word. His word. And that's what Peter emphasizes throughout this passage. His word, his word, his word, his word. God created by his word. How does that work? I don't know. It's too big for me. 
But in Genesis chapter 1, it says it all the time, doesn't it? And God said, and God said, and God said, and things happened. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen it? That would be awesome. But you know you're going to get to see his creation of the second heaven and earth. Do you know that? Because according to the timetable, we're going to be raptured, maybe tonight. We're going to go to be with the Lord. Things are going to happen on this earth, which includes the tribulation period of seven years. After the tribulation period, Jesus Christ will come again. Battle of Armageddon, all those kind of things. He wins the battle, of course he does. Sets up his kingdom, for the millennial kingdom, for a thousand years. Scripture teaches us that. He reigns for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. He comes and he makes a mess of things. The Lord puts him down, sends him off into lake of fire forever. That would be great. And then there's a, a time where the earth is destroyed. Peter's going to talk about that. The heaven and earth are destroyed. There's nothing there, folks. We're standing in nothing, except in the hand of the Lord's, probably. But there he is. He sets up his great white throne judgment. Remember, the heavens and the earth fled away. And now he sets up the great white throne judgment. He judges these folks. And they're sent into the lake of fire forever. And then he turns around and he creates all things new. Isaiah says that in 66. Here it's going to talk about it a little bit too. In several other places it hits on that. And God's going to create the new heavens and the new earth. And you're going to be there. Think about that for a minute. Isn't that going to be fantastic to see? What we never saw the first time, we will see the second time. And I won't be surprised at all if he just uses his word to make it happen. We're going to stand there and say, wow, look at that. He declares it, and it happens. Just like he did in the first time. I believe he's going to do it in the second time. Genesis 1 tells us how he did it the first time. How are we supposed to believe all this? What's that? By the scriptures. And that is by faith, because you weren't there. What does Hebrews tell us about the creation of this world? Anybody know what Hebrews 11, verse number 3 says? You memorize it? If not, we've got to turn there. 11.3. Somebody started it. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. So that that which is seen was not made out of things which are visible. He didn't take spare parts and put it together. He spoke it and it happened. It was created out of nothing. Imagine that. So does he need anything for his second creation? No. There are some who are really worried about that though. I'll tell you what. It's out there in our, our theological circles now. They're saying, well, God's not going to really destroy the whole earth. He's just going to kind of do a refab on it. He's just going to polish it up, clean it up, you know, move this and move that and, and set it all back up the way it was or something like that. I don't know what they possibly think. I think God could create something out of nothing. He's done it before. He could do it again. All the words that look to follow what he's going to do suggests to me that he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth 
in the same fashion he made the old one by his word. That's what I think is, is what we will see. I think it's powerful. I think it's a remarkable. But it can only be understood by faith. That's the nature of faith. We have to trust it because God said so. What are their mockers saying, though? Back in Peter. Oh, everything continues, verse number 4. Everything continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Notice the next words in verse 5. For when they maintain this. Now, hang on to this thought, because this is the way I'm going to describe this. This is intentional ignoring. Intentional ignoring. When they maintain this. This is a, a Greek participle, by the way, which speaks of a characteristic of them. Not just an action, not just a word, not just a dialogue once in a while, but this is the makeup of their characteristics. They maintain this intentional ignorance. It's willful. They intentionally ex let it escape their notice. It escapes their notice. They're doing it on purpose. Just like Romans said. In chapter 1, they're suppressing the truth. Do they know there's truth? Yes. Or else they want to suppress it. Do they know there's a God? Yes. But they choose not to honor Him. They don't think it's fit to acknowledge Him. So they must know He's there. They know this creation was made by Him, but there's a willfulness in their action. Intentional willfulness to maintain this mentality that... Oh, we don't know anything about that. We're, we're, we, we don't notice that. We don't recognize that. We're not going to. Uh, Albert Barnes in his commentary said, The will has usually more to do with denial and rejection of the doctrines of the Bible than the understanding has. This is not that they don't understand. It's they don't want to understand. Why? Why would anybody be so willful? Why would they choose to ignore this? When it's written all over Scripture. Because to acknowledge God is also to acknowledge you're accountable to God. And they don't want that. This world was framed by God. The, the Scripture says that. Colossians 1 even goes to the point to make this statement, which is really quite cool. Let's go over there for a minute, because I'm going to say it, but I want you to see it. Because God's Word is much better than my Word any day. But in Colossians chapter number 1, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians 1, you start in verse number 13. Let's follow the pronouns for a minute, okay? For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His Beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 14, who is he talking about? Who, through whom do we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins? Jesus Christ. Okay, that's his context. Now watch where he goes. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus Christ, watch, all things were created both in the heavens 
and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, that's the Lord Jesus, and for him, that's the Lord Jesus. To acknowledge creation by God is to also acknowledge Jesus Christ is my creator. And I belong to him. I was created for him. And do mockers want to confess that? No, they don't. It's fascinating to read this because to willfully ignore something means that you know it's there. You know it's there. And they chose that. They choose to avoid responsibility. They choose to acknowledge that it's God who governs and that we are accountable to Him. And it's all because of sin. Sin steps in there. And they don't want to follow His way because they love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. You're starting to get the picture of this mocker in this in this realm. And as Peter is addressing it, the first thing they question is God's word. Because it's that word that we have faith in to believe who he is and what he does. And so, let's deny his word, and then we've solved all our problems, didn't we? That's the mocker. Let's get rid of the word. And then everything could be however we design it to be. Because after all, this isn't working anymore. That's what the mocker would say. So if it's not working, let's get rid of it. It's like an eight-track tape. Right? We don't need those anymore. we got something better. So they want us to move on from His Word. That's why here in our Bible church, we kept coming back to the Word. We say, no, we need in the Word more and more, and even more today than we've ever had. We need more of the Word of God. Because the mockers want to take it from you. Most of the time you've read in, in history, great movements where the church was under extent, extensive and difficult persecution, the world took away the word from them. There was a famine of the word. They did not have God's word. Because of the evil nature of people, they denied it, they got rid of it, they moved it out of this realm. How many years did Russia go without anything? in their society, that spoke of God's word. It was illegal. We've had that all the way through. Even in the 1400s, it was illegal to carry a Bible in your hands, especially in your own language. Oh, that was terrible. Right? The whole English side of the Reformation and what we have today. Tyndale gave his life for this, that you might have a copy of God's word. And I can't imagine living a life without it. But that's what evil men have done over the years to suppress it. They've tried to get rid of it. they tried to mark it off the page. There was even some very bad kings like Manasseh who reigned for a long time. The word of God had disappeared even from the temple. Nobody knew where it was. It wasn't until much later when they're cleaning up the temple. Guess what they found? I found a book, the guy said. A book! What is that? They started to read it and realized it was, it was the Word of God. And it was like stunning. They had gone some 30, 40, 50 years without the priest even having a copy of God's Word. That's stunning to me. We have it. That's so cool. 
We have it. It's right here. How many different translations do you own? Wild guess. I don't know. How many do I own? I've got, I've got software. I mean, I've got lots of them on my computer. I can pull them up all over the place. What a privilege that is. Just to have it and to study it and to learn from it. But notice what they're doing. The mockers first push God's word out of the way because they don't want to acknowledge God. And they go back to creation as if, since you weren't there and I wasn't there, then their word's as good as my word. But they forget it's not my word, it's God's word. Ever since the beginning of creation, the world continues just as it was. They're intentionally ignoring something. It's real simple. It isn't the way it always was. This world is a whole lot different after Genesis chapter 2. Why? Sin. Because of sin. This earth has been cursed. You know those nasty little weeds that grow up out in your in your yard? We've got some. You want to come get them? There's some out there. We have weeds. We have death. We have molds. We have mildews and all these other things that come upon us and destroy our crops and destroy our, our you know, it, it's just a mess what we're living in. That wasn't the world before Adam and Eve sinned. But God cursed the world so that cursed people could live in it. And Romans 8 says, this world can't wait for this curse to be lifted. It wants to go back to what it used to be, as it was in the day of Adam and Eve. Well, they forgot that. Oh, let's go back to another uh, chunk of history. Somewhere around Genesis 6, maybe. Did the world change then? It was a flood. Oh, it was a little flood. It was just in the regions where they lived, right? No. It was everywhere. God destroyed this world by, uh, by a flood. And we know that's true. Look at verse number 6 when Peter's writing. This is what they're ignoring. Through which the world at that time was destroyed. He's talking about the water in verse number 5. God created by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded by water. That messes up their whole argument of verse number four. Old things just go on just as they were created. That's not true. That's not true. Things have changed since then. The flood broke the frame. God framed it with water, and the flood broke the frame. But they're unwilling to acknowledge this, because what was the flood for? Wipe out sinners. Wasn't sin so bad that God said he couldn't stand to look at it anymore? Every thought of every heart in every mind and every impulse, I'm paraphrasing, but it's right there in Genesis chapter 6. Every single thing about man was only sin all day long. Genesis 6, 5. All day long. That's the way the Hebrew reads. All day long. They only could think and plan 
evil. And God judged ungodliness. And that's another reason why the mockers do not want to acknowledge him. Because he's a God of judgment. And his judgment is not just arbitrary. Whatever I feel like today, I'm just going to get mad at the world. But he's mad at sin. And ungodliness. And that is consistent of him, isn't it? All the way through. He even said that before Adam and Eve sinned. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And God has kept that promise, hasn't he? He's kept that promise. And it's been true all the way through here. God's character is faithful in judgment too. And it's been true. But they love their sin and they don't want to acknowledge this. So they, they go back and say, well, nothing's ever changed. God doesn't judge. That's not the way God is. And matter of fact, the judgment that he brings us, I'll just fly. I'll get him. Uh, that's not our kind of judgment. That's not a, the right kind of God for us. So we're going to create our own thoughts about God. Because this God doesn't work anymore. The world is is that was, that's what it looked like. The world that was, it was destroyed. Verse number seven, the world that is, that's the one you're living in now. It's the same planet, but it's been pretty wet for a while, and now it's got another destiny. And it says in verse number seven, and by his word, notice that again, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The last phrase is still faithful to what he's promised, right? It's still the same thing. It's being kept for the day of judgment, kept for the destruction of ungodly men. They don't want you to believe that either. They don't want you to believe there's a future judgment coming. They don't want you to, to, to come to that conclusion. But God has this world reserved right now for that. He set the date. It's on the calendar. We don't know what it is. But he's got his own calendar in his own way of thinking, and he marked the date. It's reserved. That day is coming. That day is coming. He is guarding this earth until then. Let me put a side note. Our stuff right here. The modern movements in politics. What are they talking about? Oh, if we don't take care of this earth in 15 years, it's going to be gone. Have you heard that before? So send me money, and I'll fix it for you. Really? Okay. Um, there's movements in politics. Don't be surprised. It's moving in theological circles, too. They do want us to believe that our job is to maintain this earth because this earth is in danger of being destroyed by man. Many years ago, the same argument came out that we were going to destroy it with nuclear weapons. Now we're going to destroy it with the exhaust from our cars and our cows. It's interesting, isn't it? How they, they are constantly bringing us to a point of fear. We better do something because man is going to destroy this world. The truth is, folks, God will destroy this world. In his time, not in ours. He is reserving it right now. He is maintaining it right now. He is guarding it right now. That's the word. It's kept. And it will not be unkept until that day. 
If we follow it in our eschatology, there's at least 1,007 years before that day comes. Because you got a seven-year tribulation, and you got a thousand-year reign of Christ. And that's here on this planet right now. When God sets all that up, when it starts, there's a thousand and seven years. And that goes far beyond the 15 that we get told. God knows how to maintain something. And he's really good at it. And it's sustained by his word. This world we're living in here, the reality is, mockers say, oh, it's not going to last. But God says, I'm keeping it until I'm ready. I'm ready. Now, that doesn't mean I, I think we should all go out there and start our cars and let them run them all night. All right? That's not what I'm talking about. We should be careful people. That's just true. But the reality is, God's in charge, not us. God's in charge. That's what he's pointing out in this passage. Who is capable of this? Keeping the world. Who is capable of destroying the world? Who is capable of doing all this? It's not us, it's God. It's God. Back up to chapter 2, verse 9. Remember this verse? The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The Lord knows how. That's the kind of God we believe in. He's a sovereign God. He's, he's got control of these things. He's got control of it. It's sustained by his word. And it remains due to his promise. So I can rest with that. I don't know about you. But I can sleep better with that understanding. That God's got this in control. And this world is not going to disappear because of man. It's because of God. So, verse number 8, don't let that escape your notice, beloved. Don't let it. They're going to try, mockers are going to try all they want to, to change your mind. But this world is reserved for fire. For fire. How, how do you like your world? Sunny side up or over easy? It's coming. He's going to burn it with fire. Do we believe that? Matter of fact, it goes into further description of this in verse number 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. That's going to be a thorough burning, folks. It's going to be a finished job, because we're getting a new heaven and a new earth. It's reserved for fire. It's kept for judgment. It's going to be destroyed because of ungodly men. And it's convenient for them to ignore this. But it's not for us to ignore it. It's not for us to ignore this. We know the Lord can do this. We understand what we read in this passage. The prophecy of fire, by the way, has been all the way from Isaiah 66. God has said this was going to happen. It's in Joel. It's in the book of Psalms a couple of times over. We don't have a lot of time to dig through all of those. But God has made that promise. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Do we believe that? It's his word. Do we believe that? Peter's writing to us. That's what I bring you back to. He's writing to us. Not to them. He's writing to us. 
Don't let this escape your notice. This is the second time, beloved, I'm writing to you to stir up your reminder. Your reminder. We're told not to forget these things. How much, how much better can we live our lives knowing that God is sovereign? Walking accordingly. How much, how much better are we going to enjoy this life if we count on God's word to be true? He's never failed. He's always faithful. His promises are true. And do we believe that? Do we believe that? I think it's something we get more convinced of as time goes by. But immature believers are easily caught up by mockers. They're easily caught up to close their eyes too, to think, well, it's unreconcilable with the policies of our world today. So we've got to make something new. We've got to come up with a new way of thinking this out because the old ways don't work anymore. Yes, Christians get caught up in that too. So, last thought before I close for the night. The end of Peter's letter, verse number 18 Chapter 3, I bring it to you all the time because it's key. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow, 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 grow. That's what we must do. And where you are today in believing His Word and His promises and His faithfulness, grow still more. That's where we are. That's what we're called to do. These things are set before us for that reason. We're going to go back next week or so. We're going to hit verse number 8 and look at that beautiful, beautiful thing that he's doing right now. His patience. That's going to be a fun study. So we'll come back to this next week. Think about these things. Chew on them. you got five minutes. Questions, comments.